Thank you, Eric. That was a very nice introduction. And you stole my intro. I was going to do a little recap on the Society of Mustard Seeds. And um, last week, when um, Pastor Eric talked to us about being a society that acts justly. And today we're talking about, as he said, how we can become a society characterized by joy when we follow the Jesus Creed. If you have been with us at all this summer, you know this is something we've been wrestling with for this whole summer season, um, the question, the creed, and my response. And I love this because the question, which we've talked about before, was when a religious leader came to Jesus and said, what is the most important commandment? In other words, what does God want me to do? And that's a question I think all of us have asked probably at some point in our life, right? What does God want me to do here? And usually when we are asking that question, it's something very specific that we have in mind, something that um, we have a very particular problem. Perhaps it's simple. Perhaps it's really complicated. And it's got a lot of moving pieces and a lot of people. And we want to know, what does God want me to do? And Jesus answers the question by saying, you need to love God and love others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, with everything that you are, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And while it may not seem that that answer is very specific when we are saying, what do I do? That should be the basis the foundation for whatever the answer to our question is, what should I do? It should always be rooted and grow out of loving God with our whole being and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Now, um, this week, I had this situation where I had some conflict with somebody, and I was very upset by it, and um, I was very hurt by our interaction, and um, I was probably a little bit angry too, to be honest, I don't like to admit that, but that was probably part of where that, my reaction to that feeling hurt and feeling wronged. And I wasn't sure how to deal with the situation. I wasn't sure what my next steps should be, and I was praying about it and really struggling with it, and I said this very question or some form of it, God, what do I do? And then I thought, ugh, really, really, because who wants to take their own advice, right? I mean, that just doesn't sound like fun. And it, that doesn't sound like it's going to give me the answer I want, which is smack them, right? Not, not actually, you know, figuratively. Um, so, okay, what should I do? Love God, love others. And I had this kind of epiphany, and it was kind of funny, because it's only like a couple of days ago. And I feel like so many of the conflicts that we have right now with other people, right, we get into this situation because there's a lot of opinions and there's a lot of people get upset about the opinions. And even if I don't feel like I'm upset, I have this problem where sometimes I don't realize they're really upset and I think this is all just fine, but they're actually getting more and more upset and then it explodes and I'm like, what? what's wrong with you? So that's on me. I have to own my part of that. But um, I felt like I had this epiphany where God said to me, love your neighbor as yourself. And I was like, okay, okay, where are we going with this? And then it occurred to me that while so many of our issues that we face right now have to do with or are characterized in this way of us 
versus them, right? This is what I think. This is how I approach this situation. This is how them thinks, right? So you're in the us camp where I generally think you're going to agree with me. You're going to know where I'm coming from. You're going to know, you know, what I'm trying to accomplish here. And then there's them who they're just wrong, right? Generally, they're just wrong. They're not thinking about it the right way. They're not approaching it the right way, us versus them. And this is something that unfortunately we even commonly see espoused by even um, not just political, where obviously they have something to gain from pitting people against each other, but also from social leaders and even from religious leaders can fall into this trap of us versus them. It's another thing I like about our church. I think we really try very, very hard to avoid that. But we see that even with religious leaders, it's us versus them. And so when I was thinking, what do I do? And I'm like, okay, can answer my own question here. Love your neighbor as yourself. It occurred to me that if I love my neighbor as myself, there's no more them. It's just us. Because I know where I'm coming from, and I know that even if I do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing or make a mistake, even if I think the wrong thing, because I don't have the right information or I have some other sort of influence, um, maybe even emotion or something that's coloring my reaction, I have sympathy for me because I get where I'm coming from, right? And I can see my heart and I can see my intention. So I extend that same courtesy to whoever is in us, but not usually to them. So if I love my neighbor as myself, they become us, right? They become just like me. And instead of then having a mindset of us versus them, there's just us. And that even if we have a different view of a situation, even if we have a different way that we're trying to solve that problem, we are on the same team because we both see a problem. We're both trying to find a solution. We're both trying to do something that is good and achieve something that is good and that has a purpose. Even if we're coming at it from completely different ways, it allows us to be on the same team and to work together. And this is completely not on the point of what I'm supposed to be talking about this morning, but it was something that I went through, so I wanted to mention it. And if you have ever heard me speak before, you know that I have this really bad tendency to get on rabbit trails and you know talk about everything else, which in my defense, everything's related. So I will try to not do that this morning. I will just say, Eric, put this on the list. Let's this is for another sermon series later, okay? So us versus them. But back to the creed. So I feel like that's so important, and a series like this is so important because it prepares us for those moments like the one that I recently had where we can say, what do I do? And as Eric said last week, God does not keep the answers from us. And we may have to put in a lot of work and a lot of soul searching and a lot of effort and be willing to consider things that maybe don't always show us in the best of light, or that ask us to do something that we don't particularly want to do because we feel whatever, hurt or attacked or, you know, whatever the situation may be. But the answer always is rooted in love God with your whole self and love your neighbor as yourself. So today we are going to be talking about how that applies to joy, how following the Jesus creed of loving God and loving others can help us become a society characterized by joy. And happiness is a great thing, isn't it? Our culture cares a lot about happiness. I feel like we're kind of obsessed with happiness and with pursuing happiness. And why not? Happiness is awesome. 
It feels good to be happy. It makes us cheerful. It makes our lives better. It's good to be happy. It's good to enjoy life, to enjoy relationships, to enjoy food, to enjoy success, to enjoy the things that make us happy. I was just telling my husband the other day how much happiness I get from spending time with my pets, even my toad, which my husband does not quite understand. But I brought a picture today. This is Periwinkle. She's my American toad. She's two years old. We've had her since she was the size of my little tiny fingernail, so about the size of her eyeball is how big she was when we rescued her from certain death. And I love spending time with Perry. Look at her little dirt hat. Isn't she cute? Y'all can tell my husband when you see him, you are wrong, by the way. She is adorable, and anyone would be happy to interact with her. But there's a problem with happiness, right? Because happiness hinges on what's happening. So if being with Perry makes me happy and Perry goes away, I'm not happy anymore. If whatever it is, food or success, if that's what makes me happy and I lose that, I lose my happiness along with it. And I think we've all had this experience at some point where we have something that makes us happy and we lose that and we're not happy anymore. So I think we can all identify with that. I will tell you, this is a problem my daughter has on a daily basis. She is happy to have a cupcake, but as soon as that cupcake is gone, guess what? She ain't happy no more. This really drives me crazy. I'm like, okay, yes, you're done with screen time, but you just had 20 minutes of it. Can't we be happy that we had the 20? No, we're not having it now. Therefore, we are not happy. And it's your fault, mom. So clearly, my parenting needs some work. I'll take advice if you've got any for me after the service. But I love the way Elise Morgan um, says it in her book, Naked Fruit. Happiness comes from the root hap, which means chance. Happiness is circumstantial. Joy is confidence in God no matter what happens. Joy is the ability to hold up because we know we are being held up. Happiness is an emotion, but joy is a quality of life as well as an, emo an emotion. Joy is a deep sense of fulfillment and delight that comes from trusting in God. And I have another quote. Here's how Dallas Willard describes it. Joy is a pervasive sense of well-being. Since God is love, and since he is so great, meaning he is powerful, he is capable, I live beyond harm in his hands. There is nothing that can happen to me that will not turn out for my good. Nothing. Joy is based on confidence in God. So that leads us to our big idea for the day. Following the Jesus Creed leads us into a life of joy. The Jesus Creed says that the most important commandment that God has given to us, the most important thing we can do, begins by loving God with our whole being, with everything we are. And if we love God with everything we are, we will begin to trust him with everything we are, with our whole being. And then we began to realize that we have nothing to fear in life. We can have complete confidence in God that he will take care of us no matter what happens. Because no matter what happens, he is still with us. Even when circumstances are not great, even when we find ourselves in the midst of suffering 
and pain, we can still trust God and we can still trust his goodness. Psalm 1611 says, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. Because God is with us no matter what, if we are in his presence, we can have joy, even if circumstances are hard. Because life is hard. Things happen. Bad things happen sometimes. And I think that's also something that we've probably brushed up against in our life. Sometimes there is pain and there is suffering. But we know that pain and suffering are not the final word. Because in life, we know that God lives to restore and redeem our pain and our suffering and our difficulty and to use that for our good. And in death, we know that there will be no pain and suffering. I love the way that Beth Moore talks about God's deliverance. She says that God will either deliver us from suffering, through suffering, or by suffering. And what she means is this. Sometimes we're going along in life and hear some pain or difficulty that's going to cause us suffering, and God will deliver us from it, which means we go around it, right? We're delivered from having to experience that and having to um, deal with it. But sometimes God delivers us through suffering, which means we do go through that difficult circumstance. We go through that illness or that breakdown in a relationship or whatever it is, the loss of a job. There's so many things that happen to cause us pain and suffering that we wrestle and struggle with. But God will deliver us through that um, situation. Or the third is that he will deliver us by it which it always kind of makes me laugh um, when I think about it, because I'm like, oh, that's not very encouraging. But what she means is you die, right? It actually kills you. It's so much pain and so much suffering, and it's so difficult that you die. And you are immediately in the presence of God who wipes away every tear from your eye and comforts you and embraces you and says, welcome home, my beloved. So that's what she means. God will either deliver us from the pain and suffering, through the pain of suffering, or by the pain and suffering into the very presence of God. And that's why we can have joy even in the midst of suffering. And this is something that the Apostle Paul learned about in his life as he was being dragged through every jail cell in the Roman Empire. And we occasionally find him bobbing around the ocean trying to survive shipwrecks. And he's writing... I have everything I need in God. I'm content. And you're like, really, man? Because I think you could use a boat. Looks to me like you need a boat. And he would probably respond, yeah, I could use a boat. I mean, I wouldn't say no to a boat, but I don't, I don't need it. I don't have to have it because I have God with me. Paul was able to experience joy even while he was in chains because he knew God was with him. His experience of God was so profound that he was able to rejoice despite difficult circumstances because of his experience of God's presence. When we love God with everything that we are and we become confident in his love for us, we are able to abandon ourselves to his care and that gives us joy. And now when I say we abandon ourselves to his care, I don't mean we abandon our responsibilities. We need to continue to be responsible for what or who is entrusted to us. But what we abandon is outcomes. 
We don't have to struggle to try to control people or control situations so that things turn out the way I think they should turn out. We still make good choices. We still choose to do the right thing. But then we let go of the outcome and we let God have our full confidence that no matter what happens, he is still good. He still loves us. And this is why in Psalm 23, it says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Dude, you're walking through the shadow of death. Why aren't you afraid? Because God is with me. Because God is with me. Spending time in God's presence gives us joy. God delights in us, and he wants us to delight in him. When we live the Jesus Creed, we naturally begin to develop a life of joy. And the joy that we experience through loving God empowers us to love and enjoy other people, to love our neighbors. We can find great fulfillment and joy in loving others, especially when they love us back, right? But joy can also help us to love those who don't particularly love us, or those we don't particularly like. One way we can learn to do that is through celebration. Sometimes loving others feels like drudgery, right? Like something we do even though we don't want to, like an obligation or a burden. But celebration breathes joy into the ordinariness of life, and it can help us to transform the religious obligations of loving others into true joy. We see a glimpse of this in the first miracle that Jesus performs, which John writes about in his gospel. So let's look at that. If you have your Bible or a device, you can follow along. We're going to read John 2, 1 through 11, and we'll read through the whole story, and then we'll go back and look at a few things. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine but you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. There are so many interesting things going on here. Um, the first is that Jewish weddings typically lasted about a week. They were seven days and they invited as many people as possible. Because of the long time frame and the unknown number of guests, 
um, it was really hard to prepare the right amount of food and drink for this whole celebration. So to help with that, it was customary for the guests to bring food and wine with them to the party because it would be unthinkable for the hosts to run out before the party was over. And although the text doesn't explicitly say because of what's going on in the context here, biblical scholars think this was probably the third day. So there's a whole lot of party left. There's a lot that they still need to get through. And every host knows you don't run out of drinks. You run out of drinks, the party's over, right? In their culture, this would be shameful and embarrassing. They would have broken the unwritten law of hospitality. So it's a big deal for them because they're not just concerned about, oh, my reputation, although, I mean, honestly, that's probably what I would be concerned about. Everybody's going to be talking about how I ran out of drinks at my party. Don't go to her parties. But there's an unwritten law that's going on here in their culture of hospitality, and they would be failing to show hospitality to their guests. So this is not just affecting their reputation. It is affecting their witness as members of the race chosen by God to be his special people and live a certain way. This is a big deal. And a little later, we're going to talk about purity and ceremonial washing, and it's the same thing. It's not just oh, I want you know, to have a good reputation. This is their witness. This is their witness to the world that they love God and that they do what God asks them to do, that they are living in this way. So this is a big concern and it's a big deal for them. It's not just pride or ego. And if you were here last week, Pastor Eric talked about Jewish weddings also and how Jesus tells people to stop inviting people who are at the same level as them or higher, um, the same level of economic resources and political power, and instead to invite who? The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. People who have nothing to offer you, who cannot repay you. And one of the reasons that would be significant is because those people cannot bring anything to the party. They don't have wine to contribute. And biblical scholars have commented that this could be a factor in why this wedding celebration ran out of wine, because they invited too many poor people. They included everyone, including people who didn't have a contribution to make. And wine in the Bible is a symbol of joy. So they're running out of wine, they're running out of joy, and the whole celebration of the wedding is a celebration of new life. They're celebrating this new life that the couple is going to have together. So there's a lot, there's a lot of um, things um, going on here for the symbolic and what's happening. And Jesus and Mary have this interesting interaction, which I said to myself, self, do not, do not get into this. Add that to the list of things to talk about. Because it almost seems like Jesus is being rude to his mother. This translation phrases it kind of gently, but he, he actually is. <laughs> he basically says, woman, what is that to do with you and me? Anyhow, I'm not getting into it, which was antagonistic. He is antagonizing his mother, but that's a whole, that's a whole other thing um, that we could talk about sometime, the symbolism of what's going on there. But Jesus essentially says, if I do this, 
If I do this, I begin my journey to the cross. As soon as I go public, I step foot on that path. Now, if I was him, I don't think running out of wine at a party would be enough of a reason to start early. But Jesus has compassion. Jesus is here to deliver the world from sin, right? And to make people aware that the kingdom of God is at hand and to invite them to step into that kingdom. Sometimes it seems to us that celebrating, that joy, is really not that high on the list of important things. Here Jesus is, coming with the most important mission of all, and yet he takes time to be at this wedding, to celebrate, and to even begin his path to the cross in order to show compassion on the people there, in order to participate in their festivities. Sometimes, even when we feel like we have a very important mission and celebration might be a distraction, we can take a cue from Jesus that maybe the celebrating is our mission. Maybe what we want to accomplish with our important goals can be accomplished by being with people. Jesus came to be with people, and so he places a really high priority on that, and we can, I think, learn something significant to that, that it is important to be with people. It is important to celebrate with them. It's not a life or death situation, but Jesus is about compassion and generosity and abundant life. He doesn't deliver us from the power of sin so that we can just get by and survive. He offers us fulfilling, sustaining, abundant, overflowing life, a life that is full of generosity and love and joy. And there's so much symbolism going on here. When he uses these jars that are set aside for ritual purity, he's transforming the religious ritual into the joy of God's presence. Water for washing away impurities becomes the wine of joy. The celebration of God's provision and his presence. They would use that water to wash away their impurities and Jesus to, to cleanse them, to make them ritually clean. And again, because it was important because of their witness to the world. And Jesus transforms that into the wine of joy in his presence. And it also gives us something extra to think about when you think about communion and how the wine of joy is Jesus' blood. But add that to the sermon list too. That's another one. It's another good sermon. Jesus values celebration and joy. Joy is who God is. Just like we say God is love, God is peace. God is joy. God delights in his creation, in his people. And because people bear his image, there is something worth celebrating in everyone. Celebration has the power to bring people together. That's one reason that sports teams are so unifying for a community. I bet if you take everyone watching an Eagles game, you don't agree with half of them on anything, right? On any topic. But when the Eagles win, none of that matters. All our differences pale in the unifying delight of the Eagles winning the Super Bowl. We can celebrate even with people we don't like 
because our focus is on something beyond ourselves, beyond our opinions and their opinions, celebration unifies us. And it prompts us to be generous, to bring our food and our wine to the party. That's what's great about potlucks. Remember those good old days? When I was a kid, it was all about potlucks. And everybody would bring these vats of food and drinks, and there was always a million leftovers. It prompts us to be generous. It lifts our spirits by directing our focus away from ourselves, our worries and fears towards something beyond us. It gives us perspective and hope. Because we can't celebrate if we're consumed by anxiety and fear. But trusting in God helps us to let go of our anxiety and fear and our struggle to control outcomes, at least a little, if not all the way. It's a journey. And it allows us to rest in the presence of God, to rest in his goodness, in his generosity, in his glory, his magnificence and power. It gives us hope in the midst of hardship. It allows us to love others a little more easily. Going back to Psalm 23, it says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And we should notice here, who's the one providing this feast, this banquet? We're in the presence of our enemy. We're probably defensive. We're probably ready to fight. We're ready to defend ourselves. And God provides a table, a banquet, a celebration so that we can sit. And because we love our enemies, we would not sit and enjoy that banquet without inviting this to join with us. The abundance of God's provision and safety in my life is so great, I can invite them to enjoy what God has provided for me. Henry Nouwen says that our trust in God, our abundance of joy, gives us the freedom to transform hostis, which is the Latin root for hostility, into hospice, which is the root for hospitality. Our trust in God gives us the freedom to transform hostis into hospice, making the enemy into a guest. Celebration and joy are powerful. That's why Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So back to the big idea. Following the Jesus creed leads us into a life of joy. And Jesus calls us to be a society of joy. So what's our response? Our first response is cultivate joy by intentionally spending time in God's presence. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And there's a lot of ways that we can intentionally spend time in God's presence. One of my favorite ways is by practicing God's presence. And how I do that is I just, um, sometimes I make a game of it and just think about, okay, how many times today, how many minutes out of the day can I spend in touch, intentionally acknowledging or interacting with God? And for me, that might look like if I'm driving, I say to myself, okay, I'm driving with Jesus. If I'm at home washing dishes, I'm washing the dishes with Jesus. If I'm at work, I'm at work working in, in this boring meeting, but I'm here with Jesus. These are my coworkers I'm interacting with. I'm interacting with them with Jesus. And more than anything else, I think that has transformed my life by helping me to develop more of a habit of being conscious of God's presence with me 
all day, no matter what I'm doing. And I think that sometimes it can make us feel a little um, hesitant or uncertain. Maybe we don't want to, you know, imagine Jesus is in the car with us because we're, you know, having some bad thoughts about people cutting us off. Driving is an issue of mine. I think I use that as uh, an example in every single talk I give. So clearly I got issues. People are cutting you off and not signaling properly and all kinds of crazy stuff. Passing on a double yellow line. That one gets me. And sometimes you're like, oh, I don't know if I want to imagine, you know, Jesus sitting there, which it's not imagining he is there. It's just whether or not you're, you know, tuning into it or not. So that can help us to uh, give us a, oh, this is a different seat. I'm getting off on a rabbit. Put this on the list too. Practicing the presence of God. It can help reveal to us. This is what I'm trying to say. It can help reveal to us what we think about God and what we think about the way that he views us or interacts with us based on how we react when we are becoming intentionally aware of his presence. It can be a great revelatory thing. So second response, we will cultivate joy by celebrating others. We celebrate them. We find something good in them, something that we can be thankful for them about and we celebrate with them because God provides and we can share his joy with others. Let's pray. Hi, Jesus. Thank you so much for loving us and giving us your joy. You are the most joyful being in the universe, so full of love, full of peace, full of joy. Thank you for inviting us into your kingdom to be a society of joy. Thank you for teaching us the Jesus Creed so that we can join you in loving God and loving others. Thank you for providing us everything we need to live a life of joy. Help us to draw close to you and trust in you more fully. Thank you for coming to dwell with us in the ordinariness of our day-to-day -day lives and for making the ordinary extraordinary just by your presence. And everyone joined with me to say, Amen.